Hey everybody, this is episode 127 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas on a Wednesday to intro this interview with Chris Lear, author of Running with the Buffaloes. Some of you will know that book, some of you will not. Those that listened to episode 116 with Adam Goucher, who was the primary character and protagonist in the book Running with the Buffaloes, we talked about it with Adam, and now we're having the author of the book on, Chris Lear. Chris is also the author of a book called Sub 4 about the early collegiate days at the University of Michigan with Alan Webb before Alan decided to leave Michigan and turn pro after just a year there. So he wrote both of those books. Both are great reads, although Running with the Buffaloes is certainly the more famous of those reads. And so Chris actually came to me after listening to the episode 116 with Adam and said, hey, I'm going to be in Austin. He was coming here for a, a personal trip and said, hey, I'm going to be in Austin. Can I come in and record an episode with you? And that's what we ended up actually doing as a live podcast with an audience here about a month ago. And so now I'm just releasing it to for you guys to listen to. So this was actually a recording of my first ever podcast filmed or recorded in front of a live audience also with some live audience Q&A at the end hope you enjoy that before we jump into the interview today we'll get there quickly I wanted to quickly also tee up actually my second live recording which is going to be coming up coming up this Friday as we record this or as I record this it's May 15th on Friday, May 17th, for those who might be in Austin and listening over the next couple of days, we actually have our next, my next live recording podcast coming where I will be recording with Michael Wardian and Charlie Engel here it, at Rogue starting, it'll be about 6.45 p.m. on Friday, May 17th. We're going to do a run and talk with Michael and Charlie, so we'll start at 6 p.m., with a run led by our Rogue Expeditions founder, Allison Maxis. Then we're going to do, after that, a Q&A chat after a short run with Michael and Charlie. We're doing a Q&A with them and that we'll also be recording and have live interaction from the studio audience. So if you'd like to come see another live recorded podcast with me as the interviewer with Michael and Charlie, then come, come see us on Friday. For those that don't know, Michael Wardian is a badass in the ultra marathon world and is most known for for crazy back-to-back efforts. And you might hear about his his running of seven marathons and seven continents in seven days, which he did most recently in an average of, I think, two hours and 45 minutes across those seven marathons in seven days. And he just has... A lot of other stories like that where he does these back-to-back efforts that are really, really impressive. And then Charlie Engel, who's involved with the Spartan Trail World, is probably most famous for running across the Sahara Desert, which was chronicled in a documentary called Running the Sahara, which came out in 2007, which was really really amazing and challenging and impressive and at times times what's the right word depressing honestly 
uh, watching the effort take place. And so there's a lot of emotion tied up in that as I watched it. But really, really fascinating documentary about Charlie's journey to cross the Sahara on foot through really, really crazy and challenging conditions. So we're going to be chatting with him, chatting with Michael. And you can come check it out this Friday. Again, run at 6 p.m. Talk at 6.45 to 7 p.m. with those two. You can come for one or both. And if you can't come, of course, I'll be releasing all of that audio on the podcast at some point. So let's get back to quickly introing my interview with Chris Lear. Obviously, he's the author of Running, the Buff- Running with the Buffaloes, which chronicles the season, which happened just over 20 years ago in 1998 with Adam Goucher leaving the leading the University of Colorado team. His goal was to win an NCAA title that season, and the team's goal was to do the same. They ended up not winning the team title, but Adam got the individual win in what is amazing storytelling by Chris Lear to, to talk about how that season went down through the book. It's a book for me that was very, very central in falling in love with running as a fan myself. I ended up picking up the book in 2001, 2002 myself when I was very early in my running days and was just absolutely fascinating by the, fascinated by the narrative, fascinated also by the coaching tidbits that are in there from the great Mark, Mark Wetmore. And it, it made me a better coach today. It made me a, a bigger fan of the sport as well, starting back then. And it's a book that really stands the test of time, I think, in terms of just being compelling storytelling. So if you haven't already checked it out, I would highly encourage you to go read it. But I will say this interview is also fascinating because we'll talk about Chris's second book as well, Sub 4, about Alan Webb, but also just talk about the genesis of his shift to becoming an author, which involved a really, really major career leap from working in a more corporate tech environment in San Francisco area to having this idea on the Bay Bridge one day and then going and just dropping everything and going to do it, making big sacrifices along the way to get that first book, Running With The Buffaloes, out. And I think you'll be inspired by that part of the story as well, just this this idea that Chris had this idea and he wanted to go do it and he made great sacrifices to do it and didn't really have anybody telling him he could do it, didn't have any paved path to do it, but just created something from an idea in his head. And that to me is also really cool and really inspiring. So we dig into that part of the story as well. So I hope you enjoy this interview. And so without further t- further ado, here's my live recording with Chris Lear. Hey, everybody, welcome to this live, first ever live recording of the Running Rogue podcast. I'm here with Chris Lear, who is the author of Running with the Buffaloes. Doesn't really need an introduction in my book because the book was his introduction to the running world more than, well, I guess a little less than 20 years ago in terms of the book, but 20 years ago in terms of the story that you told. We've got a live audience here for those that are listening to this on the podcast, and they'll be helping us ask questions of Chris here in a second. We're going to jump in, though, with me asking some Q&A to get us started. First of all, I wanted to start, Chris, with the where are you now? 
because you know 20, yeah. 20 years ago you wrote a book or at least took notes for a book about running at the University of Colorado. You're not in the running world right now. So what are you doing now? Yeah, no, uh, thanks for having me <laughs> first. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I sell medical devices. I work for an international uh, medical device company working in brain surgery and live in right outside of Boston now. So that's what I'm doing by day. And uh, I, I keep in touch with the running world but have no direct involvement with it right now. But you're kind of getting back into it a little bit with the 20th anniversary of the big season. Yeah, it was nice. Uh, it was the 20th anniversary of, of Adam's win at the NCAAs, and he was very much kind of a seminal figure in American running um, at that time. I think the success of American running now um, definitely is in small part due to the steps that he took to get Americans back on the map on a global scene. So, uh, yeah, so there was a resurgence of interest um, come last November, uh, which was really nice. And so it's, it's been nice to kind of uh, take a trip down memory lane and reconnect with running. Is it weird for you to bring back these memories? It is. It's, uh, it's nice because it was such, a, it was such a, a highlight for me in my life. Uh, it was a really wonderful time in my life um, where I was very unencumbered. and. You know, I was working for myself. I was working full time as a writer, doing magazine work, and and trying to publish a book, and uh, all these things that, in my forty some year old mind right now, I look back and I think what my parents did at the time, which is, "What are you nuts? Like, what, <laughs> you know, what are you doing?" But at that time, when you don't have any responsibilities other than you know, caring for yourself you know, why not go for it? And uh, so it was just a, a fantastic period of my life and it's been fun to reminisce about it. So you graduated from Princeton in 96, went and took a day job. I did. Somewhere in the Bay Area. Yeah. And then at some point I had this epiphany to write the book. I did, yeah. Or the concept for the book. So talk about that. Yeah, I, I you know, and through undergrad, I, I was not an English major. Um, I did a lot of writing and um, spent a lot of time on a thesis and uh that was a hundred some pages that I turned in and I remember my thesis advisor surprising me and telling me that in her opinion if I put a little more work into that I could publish that which was outlandish to me it never crossed my mind at all <laughs> but I think the process of doing that kind of uh planted the seed that if I ever wanted to write a book maybe I would have the chops to do it and then, you know, those first couple of years, I moved to California. I did some running with the, the Nike farm team in their, their, the infancy of, of that group, which then went on to become the Nike Oregon project and the Oregon team track club. I think it's called Oregon Track Club now. And uh, being out of school, you know, I loved nonfiction sports literature, and I had the time, and I just poured through all these books. And when I would go to the, the, the bookstore, I'd look for a similar book like the Friday Night Lights or a Season on the Brink for Running, and it didn't exist. And I remember being literally stuck in traffic on the Bay Bridge one day, and I'd been kicking it around in my head and just sitting there stuck in traffic. I just said, you know, screw it. Um, if I want to see it, I might as well, it might as well be me. I might as well do it. And then I just kind of made the commitment in my mind that I'm going to try to do this book. 
and then it was a matter of trying to find the team and the opportunity and go from there. It's one thing to have that epiphany on the Bay Bridge. It's another thing to actually quit your job and go do it. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, I, I didn't really, I think my personality is, is kind of all or nothing. And uh, so I just started saving money. And you know, I can't remember what it was. I might have saved three or four or five thousand dollars. Seemed like a lot of money. <laughs> and I uh, eventually the Colorado team. I, I kind of honed in on Colorado as being probably one of the better stories that might make a good a good book. And they came out to Stanford to run a race, and I went for a run um, after they ran their their race and kind of pitched the idea to the guys. And they all were pretty unanimous that, hey, this would be pretty cool. And if I came out, that they thought, you know, why not? And it depended on getting Wetmore's approval. And then that took another, I don't know, took a, quite a while. And <laughs> he never quite said yes. Eventually, I think he kind of gave in and said, uh, you know, if, if you really want to do this, um, you know, like I'm not going to get in your way or something. You. Right. So. And then that was kind of all I needed here. So, yeah, I sold all my stuff that didn't fit in my little Saturn sedan and drove 24 hours from San Francisco to Boulder and got started. What was that first conversation like with Wetmore? Um, I had some history with Mark uh, from back when I, was a young, when I was younger and I was a runner. Um, so it was uh, – I mean, I think at first – you know, he just did everything he could to kind of dissuade me from it. You know, like, why not Arkansas? Why not Stanford? Why not this team? Why not that team? And uh, so I think very much, in a way, it was similar to how he treats his athletes and that you kind of have to earn his respect. And uh, so whether it was conscious or not, the way I interpreted it was that he wanted to see that I was serious about the endeavor. Uh, and that might have been entirely in my mind. He might have just not had any inclination or desire <laughs> to have someone shadowing him for five months. Um, but, uh, yeah, for whatever reason, I caught him in a moment of weakness and, you know, eventually was given the permission to kind of go out there. He relented. He relented. And you moved in July. Yeah, July of Team came back, I assume, in August. So what, what was the process like? How did, you, how did you start? How did you dig into it? Um, I, I, th I don't know. I mean, I think basically being like a self-taught writer, more or less. Um, I have a twin brother, and he was an English major in college. And uh, at, we both went to Princeton. And uh, I remember I took a few English classes and thought about pursuing that as a major. But it was much more literary criticism than learning how to write. And, uh, you know, under, under un uncovering the fifth layer of meaning in a short story was not my bag at all <laughs> um so i just kind of taught myself and i think the way i went about it was i looked at all these great books and i tried to deconstruct them and figure out how they structured it what fundamentally made me want to turn the page and i used that as kind of a template and then when i thought about this particular project I think early on it came to me that this the struct having more of like a diary format would make the most sense in terms of a how to structure it. And then it was, you know, being with the guys pretty much twenty four seven. So I went to class with them, I ate with them, <laughs> went to practice, you know, I was always around and then I'd spend a couple hours at night writing notes 
and uh, but it would take time to separate the wheat from the chaff, and so you know you never know when what looks like a, a blister on a foot and a minor injury a month later might have added significance. It might be something that developed into a staph infection and person's knocked out. So I couldn't really put the book together until the season was over. So I had piles and piles of notes and tape recorders and everything else. And then I got to work and fortunately I had a really good editor and uh, he really helped me with the whole writing process. And um, I think it, uh, <laughs> he's, it's funny to see where people go in life, but we both decided to get out of writing as a vocation. Like to read, more yeah. or less. And it got rejected all the way around. And I was like, whoa, boy, now I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, but the, so I was like, okay, so what's, uh, so I then at that point I questioned it, and so I brought the manuscript one day to the guys. They had done a run, and uh, literally on notebook paper. So I still have it at home. But it's like 300, 400 pages of loose leaf notebook paper, printed out, you know, Microsoft Word. <laughs> and I gave it to the guys at breakfast one morning, and I said, "Look, if it sucks, then tell me. Like I'm man enough to take that. I'll just give up. You know, at this point I'll give up. But if it doesn't," then I need to find another way. And to a man, I came back and they said, this, you captured it. Like This was the experience that we had. And so at that point, I started to find, I said, okay, well, I'm not going to give up. And there was a, something called Publishing on Demand, which was pretty novel back then, where you could self-publish the book, retain the copyright, and so essentially kind of prove that there was a market for it. Because that, I did have publishers that rejected it, that I could tell from the rejection letter that they actually read it. And a few of them said, hey, we really like this, but there is no market for running books. These don't sell. And I'd looked at it, and I thought, you're nuts. Like, look at the demographics. Look at how many people run marathons and road races. It's an educated crowd. I just I don't believe that these people don't want content. Um, and, uh, but so I had to go about that way, and I and self-published it. And fortunately, you know, I was doing grassroots marketing and, and uh, it found an audience very quickly, and then I was able to, to then sell the rights to, um, to the traditional publisher to get it done. So it was a long road, but it worked out. You got picked up in a USA Today article. Right? Yeah, that, that was became nice. A turning point. Yeah, that was a turning point. You know, I remember uh, I was living in a tiny apartment with my wife, my I don't know, girlfriend, fiance at the time, whatever, and uh, came home one day, and she said there's a message on the, on the answering machine. <laughs> Again, this is dating myself. The reporter from Did you buy that answer machine at Copy yeah, right. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. yeah. On sale. Yeah. And uh and they said uh yeah, it was Dick Patrick, he was a running writer for USA Today and and he'd come across the book and enjoyed it. And then uh there was a feature story in the USA Today and, and they said uh this book is to running what a season on the brink is to college basketball. And that was one of the books that I kind of used to help me with my writing. And that's the best-selling sports book of all time. So when, that, when, he, pub when he wrote that, that helped, um, certainly. And then I had publishers calling me after that and wanting to pick it up. So. How long did it take? What, what was that time from finishing to getting the publishing deal? I don't... I don't remember. I think it was only available as a self-published book for a few months. And um, 
you know, it did, it did, it's, it sold really quickly. And, uh, so I think, I, I think I got lucky really and a lot of respect, but, uh, it just, uh, a lot of things just, I mean, the luck plays a big part in life. I think I, you know, I was right place, right time. And then, um, you know, I was able to kind of, uh, but you were also so persistent. <laughs> I mean, the thinking about that journey of just having the idea, sticking with the idea, following through on the idea, not taking Wetmore's non yes as a no and just showing up every day and then not getting it published, but doing it yourself and then staying with it. That's not luck. There's nothing lucky about that. You, you created that luck, right? It was, yeah, I think that's part of being a runner, you know, when you, that was instilled in me as, I mean, if there's one thing I took from my running, it was that, that, uh, I mean, I used to relish the days when the weather was really crappy outside and I would think to myself, you know, this is my day to get an advantage, you know, everyone else is going to be, I grew up in New Jersey, so let's say it's the winter and it's really cold. We don't have that here in Austin, Texas. Uh, and I would think, you know, they're inside sipping hot cocoa. Like I'm going <laughs> to go bang out 10 miles and I, I'm one, you know, one step ahead. So for whatever reason, yeah, I, I just, uh, I was determined to try to make it work. Did it, what, and now it's a running cold classic and 20 years later, it's cool to see it getting some, some press and coverage again and people looking back at it. But was there, did it blow up right away? I don't even remember. I mean, was it, was it a pretty instant success once you got the deal? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of sold steadily through the years. I mean, certainly initially it was, you know, there was, it was a, a bigger market and, uh, but it was, uh, yeah, I, th I just, I think part of it is that there aren't that many books. I mean, it's not a deep literature of, of, of books out there. Um, but I think for whatever reason, it resonated with a lot of people. And all these years later, I think, you know, I'm talking to people who I've met through the years who've read it. And they, I, I think one of the things is that if you're reading the book, there's whatever you're, however you're coming to the book, there's a character or someone that you can relate to, whether you're the top dog and you relate to Adam Goucher or you're the scrappy underdog and you relate to Mike Friedberg, who was a walk-on who became an All-American. Um, you know, I, I think that there, there's something to that. And then just the nature of the story, they had an unbelievable amount of adversity that they had to overcome. And at the end of the day, they had a really a triumphant finish. And I think that that's kind of all the, the great sports books or sports movies. They have that kind of a, an element. And so that was just, you it know, played out perfectly. It did. I mean, in, in that sense, in the sense of telling a narrative, you know, as a nonfiction writer, my job, I looked at it as somehow articulating the experience as truthfully as possible to what, what it was. And uh, so you're beholden to the events. And it happened to be, if I could retrospectively look back 20 years and pick a team, where I am now in 2019, I would pick that team in 1998. So that's just dumb luck. <laughs> in a way. Going back to the book, talking about your relationship with Adam, what did you learn from him? He was, he was an animal. <laughs> I mean... He was just a physiological freak, and his psyche 
I mean, I don't think I delved into it as much as I would now if I were writing it. I mean, I think when you look at all the exceptional people, not just athletes out there, that I think a lot of times there's some some deep psychological stuff going on. And, you know, I think his relationship with his father, trying to seek approval and love from his father, I think I think there's a lot of that maybe underlying his drive. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was just uh he was just a singular talent and the drive with which he went at it and the uh just the you know, I mean one of the reasons I did it is to answer for myself, what does it take? You know, what's the right stuff? And I learned from him that there, you know, one of the things is just training at a level that I couldn't really comprehend day in and day out for a really, really long time. And uh, so it was, it was remarkable. I mean, running with Alan Webb and being with Alan Webb when, you know, when he was at, you know, at the top of his game was a similar experience. Um, yeah. But, uh, but it was, yeah, it was, you know, just such a competitor. I think, you know, Adam, if there's, there's one thing that really strikes me to this day, it's just the the fire that kind of burned within him. He was fierce and fearless. Yeah. And fearless. You know, you, you came to me by listening to his, my, in my interview with him, episode 116, and I asked him about some of what would might come off as arrogance in the book, where he's, he's like, I can beat everybody. You know, he had no, it seemed to have, he seemed to have no doubts about his place at the top of that world. And that's hard to find in athletes. And to find it with also his talent is even more rare. And, and he, you know, he, he put in the work. So, I mean, running is one of those, those sports, especially cross country and, and running 10K that you just, you can't fake it. There's no way to, to really miss like a giant block of training and somehow fake your way through it and do well. You know, you're, you have to pay your dues. And so I think he, he'd earned the right to be that confident. I mean, and he'd done some things on the track, you know, running 746 for 3,000 meters and setting the collegiate record. I mean, that, that was at a, in an era. Now, nowadays, there's a lot of college kids that are running under eight minutes. When he did it and when he ran 746, that was just a whole level above what most most college kids were doing so yeah i think there's a lot of aspects that went into him you know being emboldened and and feeling that confident so was was wetmore an enigma the whole season or do you do you think you figured anything out about him i think the biggest the biggest thing i take away from from mark is uh especially now Looking back on it, um, he's just a master psychologist, I think, more than anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, college running is more or less like women's field hockey for the most part in that there's not really like a professional pursuit. I mean, there's, you, can, you can scrap scrape together a living, but it's not like people are going from college running to the NFL for the multimillion-dollar contracts, right? And so how, how do you get these kids to invest all of themselves into this pursuit where there's no real financial reward at the end of the rainbow? And I think that's where 
he was able to get into their heads that this was a noble pursuit and that they were really rebelling against the norm. And I mean, how many college kids don't want to rebel against authority in one way or another? It just happens to be that they're channeling that energy, I think, into kind of maybe a more positive or productive direction. But, uh, you know, Arthur Lydiard, who was, you know, the godfather of modern running coaching, came through Boulder right before he passed away. And he'd met Mark years earlier when he came to the U.S. on a tour, and they had a relationship. And I had, I don't know, I, I, I don't think the book was published yet. I think I had the manuscript on. I was somewhere in the process of writing it. And I talked to Arthur after he gave his talk and said, I was doing this. And he said, uh, you know, mark my words, he's going to be the greatest coach America has ever seen. So at the time, Mark hadn't won a single NCAA championship. 20 years later, he's the most decorated coach in collegiate history for cross-country running, right, in terms of men's and women's titles, team and individual. So I think, you know, when Arthur said that years ago, that always stayed with me, that yeah, here's a guy that knows a thing or two about it. <laughs> right. What was his magic? What did what you know? Did you figure that out? How he did it? I I think the well, that's one of the things about it, right? Is you can read, you could literally, if you want to, and I know coaches that have have you know looked at the, the book and broken it down and created a training plan day by day, and said we can you can, if you want to you can recreate exactly what they did. Yeah. Um. But I think the, and so I think now this running is at a whole different level on a national level and the international level for Americans. Americans are competitive now internationally. They weren't really back then. Um, and uh, so the physiologic, I think he at the time had a physiologic understanding that was a level above a lot of others. And I think that playing field is roughly evened out, but I still think it's that culture piece then. So when that's even, then what separates great programs from the rest? If everyone knows the ingredients, everyone knows the recipe, and you still have the same couple teams that are always at the top, to me, then that's where culture comes in. And I think that's where he's, you know, it's, he's built this thing where people go there and they hold themselves to a higher standard and they expect different things of themselves. So I think it's more of that piece than anything else. It's interesting. I saw you talking in an interview about people wanting the dirt. What were the, the non-published stories? And were there any crazy parties where people doing nuts, crazy things? and give us the good stuff that you didn't put in the book kind of a question. And you kind of said there wasn't anything like that. I mean, they were up early to go run Magnolia road on Sunday morning. They weren't going out on Saturday night. So was that just, it was a Spartan existence for this team and that there was a singular focus. Yeah. I mean, I, as I, you know, I've been asked that <clears throat> over the years and, and I've always said, number one, if it wasn't in there, I'm not going to reveal it now. If there was, <laughs> If it's off the record, it's off the record. Um, but, but yes, uh, you know when you ha when you are staring down the barrel of running at eight thousand feet in six minutes a mile on a Sunday morning, there's and and knowing that again, you will be exposed if you party till three in the morning. You will be exposed very quickly <laughs> on Sunday morning, and it's going to be an awful experience. Um, so there's something about that that certainly makes people, I think, live a little more of a disciplined life. Distance runners, on the whole, tend to be pretty type A and pretty disciplined about what they do. So it's not, I don't, but yes, I think that the way that he structured it and they structured it certainly. Speaking of Magnolia Road, you, you sort of immortalized that run with your book in a lot of ways, right? I mean, people go there just 
just to run Magnolia Road because they've read about it in Running with the Buffaloes. I've done it. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of cool, too. Yeah, it's, it is cool. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, it is where I think a lot of, I mean, Boulder's still a mecca for running, right? And there's, it certainly is, like, I think, become one of those places that's a proving ground for, for, for people. And, uh, and that's cool. Yeah, it's, you know, to, to have had this, a tiny part in that is, is kind of, it's, it's neat. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about the team for a second. Obviously, the team dynamic, dynamic was really strong. And as Adam says now, if they hadn't lost Chris, then they might have won the team title as well. How close were those guys? They were tight. I mean, I think that's um, that's something that when I think of the appeal of the book, or I mean, I think there's kind of some renewed interest now in, in trying to see if we can translate the book to film. Um, I think the reason the story resonates all these years later and the timelessness of it has to do with that sense of brotherhood that existed amongst the guys as much as anything else. So there is... As, I mean, there's something about the shared sacrifice and the shared suffering that brings people together, and uh, and so you know that 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 bond was definitely there because they you know work created that bond, hard work, and and it, it's lasted through the years. I mean, I think they they're still tight, and a lot of those guys are very still tight to this day. Are do you have relationships with them at all at this point? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know I've was able to go back to Boulder just a few months ago and, and catch up with a lot of the guys. And, and uh, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to see all these years later what everyone's doing with their life. Uh, it's interesting because Adam talks about how if it wasn't for the book, he might be a forgotten footnote in American distance running. But it sort of immortalized him in a way that he didn't realize at the time. And now he has high school kids coming up saying, hey, I read the book. You're Adam Coucher. That's cool since he is in some ways been overshadowed now by his wife's career, is that cool to be a part of that kind of story? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is, it's, it is. I mean, it's, you know, I set, I set out to write the book that I wanted to read, right? And I was writing it for people like me. And uh, so it's tremendously humbling. It's, it's really neat that somehow it's still current today when so much of society has changed. So, yeah, I don't, it wasn't my aim, but it's really, it's, yeah, it's special to me that, that, that still is out there. And, yeah. uh, and it's true what you say in that. I mean, I remember, I mean, Alan Webb was probably as bright of a light as we've had in American running. And a couple years after he set the high school record in the mile, I remember speaking at a running camp and I asked the kids there and said, who knows who Alan Webb is? And like a third of the hands went up. And I was shocked. I was like, really? Only a third of you here know Alan Webb? But it just goes to show that, I mean, people that, this, the news cycle is so short nowadays that, you know, as good as people may be, a couple years later, I think it's true that most, most guys are kind of forgotten. Plus, if you don't win a medal in something, especially a gold medal in American sports, then you're kind of irrelevant yeah. in a lot of ways. Right, and that's tough. That's the most, the toughest thing about running, I think, is that, you know, by and large, people are defined by what they do in the Olympic Games, rightly or wrongly, but for, for the mass media. Let's talk about Chris Severy's death. Obviously, that was a big part of the book, and it brought the team together in a way that added to the narrative. What was it like finding that out? Uh, that was tough. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, some of these memories are just so vivid for me. Uh, you know, I remember showing up at Adam's apartment. Um, he was going to go do a speaking engagement somewhere. And, and, you know, I remember walking in his apartment and he was just sobbing, you know, and I'd never seen him like that. And, um, but yeah, the whole team was, you know, they were all pretty shattered. And so, yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, I was trying to, it and it, for me, it was hard. I had to figure out what to do and how to react. And it led me to question everything I was doing as well in terms of uh, trying to figure out what's appropriate and what's not. And um, and so, you know, I, I think I took my cue from the guys, and they they collectively decided, unspoken in many ways, that they were going to see it through. And then I think for me, too, then there was some added significance in my mind of like, all right, you know, I better, I also had better see this through because, you know, there's, in some ways I felt like this memorial, memorial, kind of memorialize Chris and, you know, nothing else his family might, you know, want that. So. Yeah. I mean, you saw the last months of his life in very great detail. Yeah. 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 I got, I got to know him well. So it was, it was a loss. I mean, it's every, every young person that passes is a tremendous loss. And, but, uh, you know, he did, you know, there wasn't too much hyperbole in terms of, you know, what contribution he could have made. You know, I mean, he was a brilliant mind and scientist and was very motivated by his own father's death um, to, you know, try to make, make some headway. I, I think cancer was his passion back then, trying to find. So it was, it was a big loss for sure. What was your favorite part of the book to write about, to put down on paper? Um, I don't know. It's it's tough because <clears throat> the editing process is so long. Um, I don't know if there's other writers here, but when I finished, like I just never wanted to see it again. I just hated it. <laughs> um, and uh, but I th I think the you know getting to the final race and then the culmination of the the story, you know that that was probably the the part that was the most fun to. To try to capture the storytelling on that part is amazing really Thanks. you know i think it i mean it's it's i remember being good the first time but it stands the test of time when i just read it back a couple months ago i mean you captured that race in a very vivid way unlike any any way i'd ever seen running written about you know i read the book the first time in 2001 and maybe 2001 2002 and was a new fan of the sport at the time just gotten into running after quitting my soccer career and i remember that being a big part of finding my passion in the sport was reading that dialogue i was also like you i loved nonfiction sports book would yeah. read them voraciously and had never seen one about running until i came across running with the buffaloes i also read a lot of fictional sports books when i was a kid with dramatic storytelling that was all made up and, and part of a, a storyline, but you didn't, you didn't need to make anything up, but you captured the picture very, very well. Thank you. Did it take yeah. a lot of time to write and rewrite that part, or did it flow out of you naturally? No, it did. I mean, it, and uh, it, it, took a long, it took a long time. And, you know, from when I finished the, you know, I had all my notes, and then I can't remember how long it took me to come up with my initial draft. But the way, I, the way 
my writing process worked is that I, my editor was working in New York City, and so I would literally write chapters, and when I had a bunch of chapters, if there was some kind of a logical stopping point, I would print them out and put them in the mail and send them to New York, and then he would take a Sharpie and edit it, and sometimes I would get whole chapters, just big X's through them, <laughs> and then he would send it back to me. And uh, so, uh, and we just, I trusted him implicitly, and so that we had a good cadence. And then uh, with, uh, but with that final one, I remember just investing a lot of time into it, and I don't think I had too many revisions I had to make. Um, nice. So you mentioned this thing potentially getting turned into a movie, speaking of dramatic storytelling. What, is, what does that mean? How does that process look like? Does somebody come to you and say, hey, we want to flip this into a script? <laughs> where well, is that'd it be great. At? Yeah, is, if is anyone's it, listening. Do we have a shot of seeing, of seeing this on the big screen? There have been, uh, yeah, I fielded, uh, uh, I guess not full-blown offers through the years, but there's, you know, there's, been, there's been interest, and, and people have come to me and said, hey, you know, inquired about the film rights and could we buy the film rights, but nothing has ever, obviously nothing has ever come to pass to date. But I think just with everything that happened last year, there's some renewed interest right now. Um, and But even if you sell the film rights, one thing to sell the rights is another actually get it made. So I'm not interested in just selling the film rights, but if, I, if it can get made, then I'd be interested in if it was done the right way. Um, yeah. And, uh, but that's where it's, it's, I think it's not a very literal translation from from text to screen, and so that's where it really would take a lot of work and and uh, so really have to. I don't know. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but uh, I think it would. You know, it would be nice. I think there's the you have the ingredients there. I think to make it shine on screen, like a miracle, some of these other films, and there's a lot of similar components, um, but. Uh, We'll yeah, see. we'll see. Stay tuned. We'll see. So you get this thing finally published. It has some success. Is it that point that you say, this is my calling. I found it. I'm going to go do this again. No. <laughs> <laughs> no? I, uh, I, I did. I, I mean, it opened the door for me to do a lot of other work and magazine work. And I, I do, I mean, to this day, I try to write one or two things a year to get my hand in it. Um, but uh, I think I got lucky in that. There's other things that I like to do, um, but it was uh, my editor and I, when I was in the process of writing my second book, we both had a kind of a come-to-Jesus moment where we had dinner in New York one night, and five or six years after I was in it, it was just really tough to make a good living doing it. And there are, I mean, I, th I think the statistic back then was that maybe 3% of authors make their living full-time as a writer. So they're either teachers or professors, and there's something else to support them. Or you get a trust fund, or you get a rich spouse. Mm -hmm. Those are two good things to have. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, for me, it just, it, what I didn't see myself, it wasn't flourishing to the point where I, I felt like it was worth putting all my eggs in that basket. So I decided to kind of make it an avocation. Um, all things being equal, if it was just me, but at the time I figured eventually I'd have more responsibility and a family, and um, so I decided to uh, kind of go in a different direction, and 
how did the second book come together? The second book being sub four about Alan Webb's first year at the University of Michigan. Yeah. Which was his first and last year. Storyline didn't play out as well as at, at University of Colorado, but how did you get to be following him with Coach Ron Warhurst and company? Yeah, I was working for a startup, um, a tech startup, and uh, this is in .com, like 1.0, <laughs> where before the bubble burst there. And uh, I was, so I was doing, I got, with Running with the Buffaloes, I had some opportunity to do a lot of magazine work, and I went and did a magazine piece for a magazine that's now defunct called Running Times, and it was a cover story on Alan. And uh, I spent two or three days in Ann Arbor with him and Nate Brannon, who was a sub-foreman at High School Miler from Canada. So it was the first and only time, I think, that two high school kids had broken four in the same year, and they were roommates together at Michigan. So I don't know if that circumstance is going to happen again. Um, but the time, it made such an impression on me, the time I spent there, that I was like, you know, this is like seeing LeBron James in high school, you know, when he's young. And uh, the magazine piece was well-received, and Rodell Press owned Runner's, owned Runner's World and Running Times. And so with, uh, after the magazine was published, then the opportunity was presented to me to kind of do more or less the type of book I did with the first time around. And my dot-com was crashing because of the economy. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, yeah, I'd love to do it again. So that Jump was, ship and did it again. So yeah, so, so went moved to there. Ann Arbor this moved time. To Ann Arbor, yeah. When did you step in? Because they came in together, Ryan or Alan Webb being the the fastest U.S. high school miler ever at the time. He started at Michigan. He broke Jim Jim Ryan's long standing record, around three fifty three, I believe, in high school. Yeah, that's right. And he and Nate Brandon were one of I think or two of only I think seven North American high school milers who had ever gone sub four. And there they were in the same room together at Michigan. What was that like? It was really cool. Uh, you know, I mean, Alan at the time, there was, I think, if memory serves, there was as much media attention on him as there was a few years earlier with the Fab Five, which is remarkable to think. So he was under a microscope. And, uh, it w you know, it, just, um, it was just the way things unfolded was so different. Um, to your earlier question, you know, there was one point during my time at Michigan where every one of the protagonists that I was following was was injured, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my God! Like, what, what do I do?" What do I do? <laughs> yeah. And so, fortunately, things kind of came back together, and uh, you know, and there was enough. There was enough there, um, but it was essentially, I think, you know, when I look at it now and say, "Well, why does that book not sell as well as the first one?" A lot of it, again, has to do with nonfiction being nonfiction. And, you know, that story was, a lot of it was, you know, focused on, on Alan on the most difficult time of his life. And it's really seeing, you know, a guy that was at the time kind of unraveling. He came back. Um, but why do you pick up a book in the bookstore and read it? And I think oftentimes it's because you want to be inspired. Right. And you want that Hollywood ending. And when the paperback came out, I was able to write an afterword. Um, where Alan had really kind of risen again. Yep. And so that, I thought, gave it kind of a nice nice ending. But because he struggled at the University of Michigan and ultimately left after one year. Right. Went to go back to coach, to be coached by his high school coach. And it took him a little while to, to basically regain his status after his precocious high school career. Did you see, and now he's a U.S. mile record holder, 3, 346, fastest U.S. miler ever. 
So he figured it out <laughs> right. through his high school coach, essentially. Did you think that would happen, or did you think after he left it would be, it would be a tough road? Oh, I, I always thought that he was going to do great things. And the, you know, the talent, talent is talent. And he had the heart, he had the work ethic, he had all the other ingredients. And it just, uh, it just wasn't the right fit. And so many things in life are about fit. And, uh, you know, if you're, especially in a, your, your coach, in a coaching context with an athlete, if you don't believe and trust your coach, it's never going to work. Yep. And uh, so I think he had so much faith and trust in his high school coach. So going back to that made sense. So if uh, so, no, I was not surprised at all. I mean, he I saw him do things that I don't think Adam could have done. Um, just things that are just are absolutely remarkable. And uh, so he uses also singular talent. Yeah. Some of my athletes are watching, and they can thank you for getting to do the Michigan workout on occasion because that's Sorry. One, that's one that I first read about reading that book sub four. So, so there, there you go. You, you contribute to their torture nice. even to this day. <laughs> so what was Ron Warhurst like in comparison to Wetmore? He was great. And, uh, you know, he also is one of the most successful coaches ever. You know, you look at the Olympians, he's coached and Olympic medalists and everything else. It's just, uh, just a totally different style. And, um, and that's where I think it all comes down to having the right fit. And if, if you, you know, the, the kid that was going to be successful with Ron was not necessarily the same type of kid that was going to be successful in Colorado. And, uh, but it was, yeah, so just totally different coaches' styles. Um, but for the right athletes, it worked in both programs. It worked for Brandon, in a sense. It worked for Nick Willis, who would come in, I think, a year after Webb. Right. Who is now a two-time Olympian. And Tim Brough. Another one that yeah did great with Ron Kevin Sullivan I think was also in that yeah so that book comes out doesn't have the same success are you questioning your existence at this point <laughs> uh no I mean because when I finished the first one I didn't really have any intentions of writing another yeah um and uh so you know it, I think that really has had like a typical lifespan um and so it did well you know. I think it did reasonably well for what for what it is, but it's just there's only so many books that kind of stand the test of time, and you know that one there's a trickling of copies that get sold every year. But uh, <laughs> I still highly yeah. recommend it. Yeah, no, I you know I it's I, a good one. I, I enjoyed you know for me it's about even to this day it's really about the process and if I'm true to the process then the results you know whatever happens happens. But if I can feel good about what I my effort and what I put into it, then um, Whatever happens, happens. So before we open it up to the audience to ask some questions, final question. As you reflect back on both of those experiences, what does it mean to you now? You know, it was, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's hard. You know, I have two kids, and, and they're, they're 10 and 8. And so, I, you know, I try to think in terms of, you know, what it means to them. Um, and I think uh, I think I'm just glad I took a risk, you know. And I think in in um, it's hard. It's hard, especially especially in today's world, it's harder and harder. I think for for people to really take a gamble. And 
see if it pans out. And uh and I I I just I just have great memories. I you know, I I took a risk, you know, I made the most of it and um and I when I look back on my life, I think it just really strikes me that I made great friendships and I had a hell of a time doing them. And so I I wouldn't change it, you know. Uh so I'm I'm really I'm glad for the experiences and the memories more than anything. And for my kids just hopefully one day, you know, maybe they'll be on the edge of thinking of pursuing something and, and uh taking a calculated risk. So I mean, that's the other thing about it is I don't feel like like when I did the first one I I feel like I was somewhat prepared. So I don't feel like it was completely out of the blue. Um so it's not like I just said, hey, I'm going to be a painter. <laughs> I can't draw. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so I th- I'm more, more than anything, I'm thankful for the memories and, and uh, the experiences that I had. Well, thanks for doing it. It certainly, I think, impacted a lot of lives. So that's also got to feel pretty good. Thanks. Yeah, no, that's, that's certainly the best part is that the, uh, you know, I never, th- who can, uh, there's no better, nothing better than that. And, and that, you know, s- some people through the years have said that, you know, this had helped, you know, shape some aspect of who they are. I mean, that's tremendous. It's more than I ever could have asked for. So. Let's open it up. Who has a question? Jojo. Hi. Uh, I've hey. read Running with the Buffaloes. I haven't read uh, Sub 4, but now I know I need to. Anyway, <laughs> I love the book. I'm curious, over the years, you know, if time and resources weren't an issue, are there any other subjects who you think might have made um, another interesting book? Yeah, um, I, I came close to writing another one. Uh, and um, so, someone else ended up doing it. The life got in the way. I had some family emergencies that I had to take care of. So unfortunately, I didn't get to pursue it. So I don't want to diminish what that person did in any way. So I, I won't answer you directly. I'll answer you offline. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, but I think this, the type of writing that both of these books that I, the type of reporting that I did for both of these books entailed that I had to be in shape and I had to be like fit enough to actually run with these guys. And uh, so I, there's certainly no way in hell I could do that now unless we're, you know, running with, you know, 70 year old masters runners that's about my bag nowadays um so uh yeah i think there's i think there's you know there's 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 a lot of good stories out there um and uh i think the one thing that i would love i would love to see as a reader is i'd love to see something with a, a, a women's team and i just think that that's so much more um again trust is a huge part of it uh and just having the athletes trust you to do it and uh so i think it'll take the right person and the right team for that to happen but i think there's a great book on women's distance running that's out there by frank murphy and uh outside of that um there's not much and i think that there's certainly an opportunity for the right person to pursue that are you still a fan of the sport do you follow it i do through um let's run.com is uh some of you may know it um but my roommate from college, him and his twin brother, founded Let's Run dot com, and uh, 
the that is really I think more than anything what keeps me connected to the sport is I read the front page. I probably go there every day, and uh, and I just I read the headlines. And if it were not for for Let's Run, I don't know where I would go because I think they do that they do what they do very very well. Um, so I'm yeah, I I will be a track nerd forever. Good to hear. Other questions? Okay. So I read the book like 10 years ago, and so r running with the Buffaloes, what I remember, there wasn't really anything about like you. Like I don't really remember the author at all being part of the story. So do you think that you were part of the story just because you decided to write it? Or did you like intentionally leave yourself out? That's a great, great question. That was that was one hundred percent intentional. Um, in fact, when I self-published it, um, I just had my name on it. I had no about the author, nothing. And the when it got picked up, they made me do an about the author because um, I, my desire and my aspiration was to just get out of the way and let the story story tell itself. It had nothing to do with me. Um, so that was very much a conscious decision. And I think that might be the first time I've ever been asked that in 20 years. Good question. Other questions? Joe, Joe, got another one? Um, I feel like part of why like that book is so impactful was because it was sort of before social media, uh, before athletes really had a voice. Um, they gave us an inside look at this team. Can you imagine doing this kind of project now and you know how would it be different what would it look like do you think you as a college student still would have done this you're right i mean it's a it's a totally different landscape now and and i think i think that would make it really challenging to you know if if you're trying to capture something and yet aspects of the story being published every day in in some format um I don't know. I think it would. I think it would make it much more challenging, you know. If, if uh, and I do know that there's. I think there's some coaches out there who, who more or less are like you're, you're on the internet or you're on the team. You pick kind of thing. So it'd probably have to be in the, that type of an environment uh, for it to really be as impactful. But uh, but that's where you know back then it was very much a black box as to what does it take to be great. People just not many people really knew. Um, so nowadays I think that part of it people know um but the story of the, the interpersonal relationships and the characters and everything else that's the x factor i think that would make it interesting but you're right I, that would, it would certainly change things and be something that someone would have to weigh you ran a half marathon here in austin as a part of a relay getting ready for your second book to prove that you could hang with alan webb on easy runs but what did you learn about training from those books I think uh, I, I learned a lot from from both experiences, um, and uh, I think one was very humbling. And I, I think a lot of people, you finish your career and you think, well, if I would have, could have, should have, you know, if I'd have done things differently, I could have been an Olympian. I could have been this and that. And when I saw Adam Goucher and I saw Alan Webb, I knew one hundred percent for certain I never ever would have been a world class athlete. Never. So that was very, it was, it was nice. I could put that to bed. <laughs> uh, Dream smashed. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
but I think when uh, the the big light bulb. So I, when I ran the half marathon, we were Chris and I were talking earlier. Um, I surprised myself. I I thought I would run six minutes a mile, and I ran quite a bit faster that day. I ran about a one oh nine half marathon, and uh, I think that I ran then with Weldon Johnson from Let's Run, his coach. Actually, I had him devise a training program for me to get up to get ready for that race and. The big difference was that I did a lot of volume, but I didn't do as much intensity, and so I really surprised myself in what I was able to do. So I think the whatever program you're doing, there's just no substitute for the time on your feet. But I think the takeaway that I have, looking back on it, is you know if you can run at eighty percent and be healthy and sustain that and go every day, that's more valuable than going you know, 95% getting hurt because every time you get that setback and you're out, out of commission for a while, it's, it's, it's really, really, it just becomes progressively more difficult to get to a really high level if you don't have that giant base of consistent training. So I think consistency above everything else is the key. No doubt. Any other questions? All right. We'll wrap it there. Thanks, Chris Lear for coming in. Thanks, Chris. Hanging I appreciate out with it, us. I think we're about about an hour, so that's perfect for podcast timing. And he'll hang out. If you happen to have a book with you, we'll find a Sharpie and he'll sign it. And if you want to ask any secret questions about the book that he didn't get to, then we'll get to that uh, once we turn off the recording device as well. But thanks for coming. And I don't know if I told everybody the story, but he called me last week and just said, hey, I'm going to be in Austin. I'm listening to your podcast with Adam. Can I come talk to your store i'm like yeah let's do that so thanks for for reaching out and for doing this it's really cool thank you there you go chris lear everyone i hope you enjoyed that discussion with him and i hope you were inspired to perhaps take a leap of faith on an idea that might seem crazy but that could change the trajectory of your life like chris did back 20 plus years ago so thanks to chris for joining Thanks to the audience that was in the room with me. And thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. You can check me out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.